Welcome to Sound Philosophy. This is the second in a series of episodes where I'm joined by Eric Daxier to discuss Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. This episode addresses the prefaces. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy. Kampergen's preface A, the first preface that he wrote for the Critique of Pure Reason, with the following uh, sentence, and I'm, I'm reading from the Paul Geyer uh, translation. Quote, Human reason has the peculiar fate in one species of its cognitions that it is burdened with questions which it cannot dismiss since they are given to it as problems by the nature of reason itself, but which it also cannot answer since they transcend every capacity of human reason. End quote. I want to work through that first sentence a little bit. Kant suggests that ultimately the reason that allows us, the, the faculty of reason, right? And, and right now, we're not even sure what that is, right? We're going to learn later that there's this whole architecture, that there's, there's reason and there's understanding and there's sensibility and, and somewhere in there's imagination and, and, and so on. But right now, I think he means reason in the broad sense, right? Human reason as a whole. And he sometimes, and that's a, a point of confusion, I'm sure, for some people, that sometimes he means reason as a faculty among other faculties, and sometimes he means it as the sort of unifying whole. But right now, I'm pretty sure he's talking about the unifying whole. So he suggests that ultimately, this larger sense of reason, which allows us to understand that the furry creature in front of me is a squirrel, and the reason that allows us to see our neighbor's dog today as the same dog we saw yesterday, and the reason that allows us to comprehend cause and effect, and the reason that tries to comprehend the notion of God, that all those reasons are one and the same. That we use the same processes, that we use the same faculties, that we use the same uh, rule-boundedness, whatever that'll be, to deal with the squirrel in front of me, the recognition of my neighbor's dog, and uh, cause and effect and God all at once. Now, some of those things feel more secure than others. When I see the squirrel and I recognize it as a squirrel and not a skunk or a badger, I feel fairly secure in that knowledge. When I, when I uh, see my neighbor's dog and recognize that they're not fooling me and substituting some new dog, I feel fairly secure in that knowledge. But as we know from centuries upon centuries of discussions about what the right religion is and what the true nature of God is, that feels somehow less secure. And yet Kant says that we're using the same reason to get there, right? And the reason, it seems to me, for this, the reason that reason gets itself into trouble uh, is part, of, part and parcel of what makes reason so successful as well. Because reason pursues a line of inquiry. That's one of its functions anyway, right? It pursues a line of inquiry. So when we see an effect, we seek a cause. And we seek a cause for that cause. And we go back further and further and further until we arrive at what Kant terms the unconditioned. And this is similar, of course, to Aristotle's uncaused cause, right? So we can experience a lot of this directly. We experience the squirrel, 
right? We experience the dog. We, we in some way experience cause and effect, and yet not directly. That's what Hume showed us. And so already we're moving away from what we can directly experience to what feels necessary to that experience. And as Kant will show us, what we sort of bring to that experience. We'll get to that soon enough. But the idea is that we, we, we don't, uh, even if we don't experience these things directly, Kant insists that our experience of the world would be deeply impoverished if we had no comprehension, no built-in capacity uh, in experience for, say, cause and effect. Right. So even though, as Hume has showed, and I, I think Kant accepts his argument, that, uh, that we don't directly see cause and effect. We see one billiard ball strike another, and we see the second billiard ball move, but that's not seeing cause and effect. It's not seeing the cause. It's seeing action and reaction, but not cause and effect. Kant thinks that our experience would be deeply impoverished if we did not have some notion of cause and effect. So metaphysical concerns make the same appeal to reason and exercise reason in the same manner as phenomenal experience does. So you can't separate these things for Kant. And this is where I want to I wanna start today, right? Is, uh, here we have this, this insight, this notion that reason does certain things that we can't let go of. That if I see the squirrel as a squirrel, there's some metaphysical knowledge involved there. Now, we, we want to start by asking what that is and if Kant's even right about that. But for him, if we accept that, then it's those same principles of reason that we use when we're examining the squirrel and when we're examining God. And yet, examining God gets us into all sorts of metaphysical problems that he sees as real problems, right? I mean, that was the whole point of the book, uh, The Dream Seer, right? He recognizes that people get themselves in, in philosophical trouble with metaphysics. And yet, if you throw reason out entirely, which is what he seems to think Hume does, and what Hume himself says that he, he kind of does, that he kind of just lets go any notion that reason has a real foothold on the world, that reason is anything more than just our way of dealing with, with things. It's not, it's not secure. Then for Kant, if you do that, if you take the Humean route, then you can't have reliable knowledge of anything. That thing in front of me might not be a squirrel. It might be just about anything. It might shift and change and right in some manner of a kind of uh, dreamscape. And that means that if we can't have reliable knowledge, then we can't know squirrels, we can't know dogs, we can't know the computer that's in front of you or the uh, you know the your phone or whatever you're listening to this on. You can't know anything. Can't know yourself. And if you think that metaphysics is not divorced from basic cognition, as Kant thinks, seems to think, but you recognize the absurdity into which reason falls, then you can't believe that, uh, then, then, I'm sorry, then you do believe that reason is inherently bound to fall into absurdity, right? So if, 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 if metaphysics is bound up in cognition, but, but, but metaphysics leads to the absurd, then you live in an absurd world. And you can see this as being a sort of gateway to Sartre or something like that, right? So it's a problem no matter what. Either you think that, that reason is secure when dealing with cognition, then you have to understand why is it that when I try to think about uncaused causes, I get myself, the unconditioned, I get myself into trouble. Or you have to say, well, reason is trouble all along, and so I can't really know anything. So you can't get rid of metaphysics without ditching Everything, including, of course, morality. And that's one of the big problems for Kant, right? That if we ditch metaphysics, we ditch morality. And we want, that'll be more clear in the second preface, I think. So the point for Kant, then, is to discover how reason operates, how metaphysics is possible, since it is, at least part of it, necessary, and what limitations bind 
both reason and metaphysics. Right? So there's the question of the whole preface. How is it that we're going to do this? Right? How is it that we're going to save metaphysics from itself? Do you think that's a fair assessment, Eric? Yeah, and in fact, uh, one, one way to see uh, Kant's whole project is uh, basically a response to this, uh, this paradox, that paradox of reason, that it's, it's kind of trapped by questions it can't really dismiss or answer to its satisfaction. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's a that's a tricky thing, right? I, and it's it's one of those things that I really admire in this preface. I, I really admire the first preface in a lot of ways. I think that in some ways it's the better of the two as far as being an introduction to this book in itself, right? And we'll talk about what we think the second preface accomplishes when, in the next segment. But one of the things that I find interesting about this preface is that he shows that this book is necessary, that it's not just, I'm just trying something out, but that I'm really addressing a problem that reason presents to itself. And if, and if we agree, and it's hard to imagine not agreeing, even, even for a radical skeptic, uh, that, that we, we employ reason to navigate the world. Yeah, right? I mean, and part of his point is that the, the radical skeptic is still engaging in a kind of metaphysics, and that's, that's important because we're stuck with it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I invoked Sartre a minute ago, but there's a sort of bad consciousness here, right, in, in, in the skeptic, that, that the skeptic says, well, we can't rely on reason at all, and yet the skeptic goes outside and buys a sandwich and, you know, sees a dog in the distance and knows that that one's safe and sees another animal in the distance. Like, I, I was out walking the other day and saw a skunk cross my path, and I knew not to... Not to keep going. Well, I'm so I'm even if I'm a radical skeptic, I'm using reason all the time in order to navigate the world. And so Kant sees this as a kind of uh, of bad faith in a sense, right? That that you're you're. I mean, that's not the best analogy, but whatever. We'll let it stand. <laughs> uh, that that you're you're navigating the world using reason. You can't help but do so, and yet you're you're putting no truck uh no value in reason and that, that simply can't stand so uh you're better off learning what reason can do and what it can't do and then not being sort of fooled into thinking that you can dispense with the indispensable right if reason is is the way that we navigate the world as a whole then we better figure out how best to do that and what it can do and what it can't do. And, and that's the point that for Khan a lot of these problems go away once you realize that reason and and metaphysics have certain limitations. That's more of a topic for the second preface, but it's already here to some extent, right? That the problem with reason isn't reason. The problem with reason is that we we invoke so many possibilities within it that may not be there. And part of that, as Kant says, and this is what I find so alluring about the opening gambit here, is that it's not our fault. Reason leads us into these traps. And the, the main one is this issue of causality, right, and the chain of causation. Hmm. You want to... Uh, well, he, he's sort of telling point. a story, right? His, his way of getting into all of this is this... Uh, I, I've thought of it as the fall of metaphysics, uh, like it's a kind of historical... Even if he's not literally being historical about it, there's this progression where we have uh, the dogmatists and this, uh, this kind of civil war with each other, which leads to skepticism which leads to indifferentism, which itself isn't all that bad because it sets up, it's kind of a useful enemy for him. Uh, it sets up the system that he's, he's coming up with. 
Um, and all, all of them are talking about uh, about causality. All of them are talking about the ways that we can uh, that we can know uh, anything about one thing following another. Right. So let's talk a bit about causality. I mean, when when I see something happen, I see a billiard ball move. Right. Then what do I do? You think that that one was caused by something else right so i seek i seek its immediate cause its direct cause right but of course the initial billiard ball didn't just move on its own so i have to seek a cause for it right the stick well the stick didn't move on its own right so i have to seek a cause for it my my hand moving it as a, as a pool player, right? Well, not my hand because I would have ripped the felt. But someone else's hand, a skilled pool player, uh, using the cue, right? Not a stick, a cue, uh, in order to hit the ball. So that the stick, the, I move the stick, which hits the ball, which then hit the cue ball, which then hits the uh, uh, the other ball. And of course, and what, moves. what moves you when you do that? So and then this what is moves that me? Aristotelian problem, right? Uh, right. And I guess for some people, they like to stop at free will, but, um, but this is a, the skeptics might not, be satisfied by that once we get there once we get to you could you, i guess you could say the next thing would be almost uncontroversial which is the will right i uh, in some fashion there was a will to move the stick in that manner which hits the ball which hits the other ball um and so you so you could say that i've traced it to a more or less uncontroversial thing because even skeptics think that there's well maybe not but the, but if we use will in a general enough way i think that it's fairly uncontroversial the question then becomes is it free will is it conditioned will is it my will is it something some other universal will right there's just the way things have lined up in in a chain of necessity this is where we get to something that we can't directly see and investigate in the way that we can investigate the balls and the stick, and even to some extent my physical motions and and the notion that uh, I decided or something was decided through me in order to hit the ball. Yeah. So eventually we get lost in just talking about uh, mere concepts. Uh, it's just it's just concepts floating around that we're it becomes part of our, uh, our our war with each other about explaining cause and effect. Right. Which, which becomes harder and harder to test, right? And in fact, it becomes impossible to test. Like we could say, okay, well, uh, the ball moved in such and such a way. Let's hit it at a different angle and we'll see that it moves such. Let's have the the, the um, uh, table tilted or you could do all sorts of things and change the parameters and sort of test what you think is necessarily going to happen in the physics of motion in order to – but once we get to – the free will or a determined will, how do we test that in a straightforward way? It's not clear, right? And so how do we do things in the rationalist manner? Notice what we did. We said that the, the ball moved. Well, what was it that caused the ball move? In other words, what was the ground of knowing that the ball moved? This is what Leibniz calls the principle of sufficient reason. This is the basis of the principle of sufficient reason, that everything has a ground, right? Now, this is what reason does. This is what I think is so clever about uh, Kant's argument. So I find a ground for the ground for the ground for the ground. I keep going back. And the, the foundation of all this is ultimately Aristotelian, which is that there's got to be something. It can't be infinite regress. There's got to be something that, that moors, that anchors the whole thing. Yeah. Right, because otherwise it's infinite regress, and if if we want, we can talk about all of Aristotle's problems with infinite regress. <laughs> but there's there there are a bunch of them, and they're fairly compelling, 
right? Uh, the the sort of obvious one is where does it all start? If it's just infinite regress, there would be no way. Yeah, to n- nothing get the whole could thing move going. you in the first place. Uh, if, right, if you're, right. It, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the great <laughs> Thomist uh, proof of of the of of this problem is that it, I love the way that uh, Saint Thomas does this. Right, uh, he just says something moves. Saint Thomas Aquinas, right? Something moves. And, and and he just it, Thomas is of course a great writer and so he just sort of lets you linger in this idea that something moves and you're like yeah of course things move right and then once you accept that then he lays out all of these these problems with it if there's if it's uh, an infinite regress so from the mere fact that that the ball moves we have to accept if you buy this argument which I think is pretty compelling. That, uh, that, that therefore there can't be an infinite regress. And if that's the case, then there has to be something that Kant calls unconditioned. But what's the problem with the unconditioned? There's no ground for it <laughs> by definition, right? So, so if you believe this mechanism of causality and understanding causality, that the way to understand causality through the principle of sufficient reason is that you find a ground for the thing. And then you have that thing and you find a ground for that thing and so on. And that this eventually has to be anchored in an unconditioned Something that 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 wasn't caused. Yeah, uncaused you're, you're led to speculate about something that you cannot experience. Right. Not only can you not experience it, but it it defies the law of the principle of sufficient reason by not having a ground. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to seal up the thing, now Kant has a. The, I don't know how much you paid attention to this part, but Kant has a sort of way of dealing with this that I think is interesting. And I don't know that it works. And he gets it from Leibniz, I guess, but I don't know that it works, but it's interesting. He says, he doesn't say it outright and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but he seems to imply that the ground is the completeness of the whole thing. That, that when you get back to the uncaused cause and you see how the whole chain of events unfolds in its kind of necessity that that is the ground of it yeah necessity itself is the is the thing that holds everything together right and that of course is uh, aristotelian right i mean because aristotle's notion of the first principle uh, the way that we deal with the first principle is that we sort of get an insight into it and then there are all these things that fall out from it but you don't really understand the first principle until you see everything that necessarily falls out from it that leads back to the first principle so it becomes this kind of uh circulatory thing that's why uh the latinists uh, like thomas aquinas will use the term uh reductio right which we translate as reduction but we mean something usually by reduction that's quite different what it literally means here is that you're leading it back right so so all these things that fall out from that first principle are led back to that first principle and when you see that and you have a grasp of the whole that makes it so that you truly understand the first principle just being able to summarize the first principle is not understanding the first principle you have to understand all the things that fall out from it and how they relate back to and we're going to see that Kant wants something similar Right. He kind of I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll just say this and then we'll come back to it. But he kind of, in a way, fetishizes the table of contents in in the end of this preface by saying that in a way you can look at the table of contents and you can see the whole. Of course, you have to read it to understand what the table of contents means. You have to read the whole book. But once you see what the table of contents with all those those um, those titles mean, headings mean, then you see the whole, and that for him is very important, which is why he says, and we'll come back to this in more detail, like I said in a moment, but that's why he says, I don't give a whole lot of examples here. He says there are two reasons. One, 
people who really know this stuff don't need examples. They understand it from the concepts. And two, if I gave too many examples, then you would lose. Yeah, the, it would uh, distract. Right. The perspicacity of understanding the whole, of seeing the whole at once. Yeah. All right. But before we get there, which we'll, we'll get there in a second, what we or in a few minutes, what we need first is something very important. The title, right? I mean, he, he gives us here uh, at uh, roughly um, a uh, little Roman numerals uh, 12, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're looking at, at uh, the, um, we're going to use those, the, the A uh, and B citations mean the two different um, uh, editions, of course, of the book, the 1781 and the 1787, which, you know, uh, we probably should talk very briefly. I'll just say it in one sentence and, and Eric can say if he thinks there's a better way to characterize this. But it seems to me that what happened with this is Kant releases the 1781 book. He immediately recognizes he has to defend it. And so he releases the prologomena to any future metaphysics, which is meant to sort of popularize or, or uh, water down to some extent or just uh, get his ideas across in a without proof, more or less, but just uh, so people can understand it. It's kind of like his own cliff notes to his book. <laughs> He realizes that even that doesn't work very well, so he creates a new edition uh, for seventeen that's released in 1787. But that edition isn't exactly self-standing either, and so what winds up happening is what we're doing, right? Where you're reading both the A and the B, and in in the uh, Geyer and in most of the um, translations I'm familiar with, they just interleave them. You don't, you know, there are some translations that just have the A and just have the B as separate things, but for the most part, they're just interleaved so that. Uh, you're kind of bouncing back and forth and there are times where that works really well. And there are times where it creates its own set of problems that we'll have to deal with. Uh, the prefaces are almost always, in fact, always, I think, um, presented as separate things. So it's not a problem we have to deal with today, but it will create problems quite early on when we get into the meat of the book, yeah. I think. Any, anything he didn't totally rewrite, anything he just kind of edited, um, added or redacted, uh, then it gets, it gets kind of weird. So any good edition of this, no matter the translation, will have the uh, an A and then the page number. And, of course, it's lowercase Roman numerals for the prefaces. So I'm now at A12, if you're looking along. And this is where he introduces the title of the book, right? And um, I'll, um, I'll read the whole very long uh, sentence. Uh, and uh, before we started, Eric was saying that he feels like, uh, actually, you got to say it. What do you, the, the, your idea about Khan and his long sentences here, that it's not oh, just yeah. Germanic. <laughs> no, yeah. Whenever, whenever he gets to a point that he thinks is really important, uh, that's that, you know, he's got to get it right. He's been spending a lot of time thinking about it. He just, uh, it just becomes one gigantic sentence. It gets, and it gets complicated and trying to put it into an English translation. I know, um, Geyer aims for literalness, so you really get the feeling for that from from Geyer. Um, I, I like the Pluhar because it clarifies, I think, what Kant's getting at, and helps to fix some of those uh, those little grammatical things. But yeah, yeah. But I think that's a good point, and it's one that I didn't think a lot about. But uh, I want to draw this out before we get to the definition of the critique of pure reason, which I promise we're getting to in just a second. But I think you're absolutely right that if you think about those two translations. They're trying to accomplish different things, both of which I think Kant would admire, right? On the one hand, the Pluhar is trying for clarity. So just break the sentence up into its meaning bits and, uh, and, and try to really get a sense of what this thing's all about. But what the Geyer does 
is something that I think is important to Kant, which we've already alluded to, and like I said, we'll come back to, this idea of the comprehensiveness. And I think Eric's insight is absolutely right, that what Kant's trying to do is he's trying to almost get it all out of one breath because that shows how it all holds together. Sentence after sentence after sentence can be thought of as being separate ideas. But if you have it in Kant's sort of um, somewhat rebarbative grammar uh, where where these ideas are forced into to each other in this in this kind of proximity of being all within one comprehensive sentence you get a sense that the comprehensiveness of the sentence is an analog or a homology if you will to the uh to the comprehensiveness of the idea yeah that, totally that, and yeah. it's sort of like what artists uh say what they're getting at when they like i i saw it all in one glimmer you know or right. you know, stravinsky famously said that about the rite of spring there's right. this like single, there's the single little glimpse that you get of the whole and you just got to pump it out and you get the yeah. sense sometimes that Kant is just like, <gasps> and then he pumps it out. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously the same kind of um, impetus is behind Heidegger's throwing all these words into one big giant word and, and so on. All right. So here's the passage. Um, he, he's talking about, about the indifferentists and so on. Uh, and he says, this is evidently the effect not of the thoughtfulness of our age, but of its ripened power of judgment. So as Eric pointed out, the indifferentists, we learn something from them, right? Uh, it's not just that they're throwing their hands up in the air. They want something valid. They want something real. They want judgment. They want to be able to uh, to subsume what the the powers of reason uh, under the power of judgment to to assess it to know what's going on. So uh, this is the ripened power of judgment of the age that's leading to this indifferentism, right? Which will no longer be put off with illusory knowledge, and which demands that reason should take on anew the most difficult of his tasks, namely that of self knowledge, right? And to institute a court of justice by which reason may secure its rightful claims while dismissing all its groundless pretensions, and this not by mere decrees, but according to its own eternal and unchangeable laws, and this court is none other than the critique of pure reason itself. So we have a couple of things there. First of all, we are learning in some fashion, but we're not learning, and he's going to say this again in the second preface, we're not learning in the manner of a pupil, we're learning in the manner of a judge. And I think even though that's in the second preface, it's appropriate here. So uh, while I know I'm sort of spoiler alerting or whatever things uh, that we're going to talk about in the next segment, I still want to deal with it here. The idea is that when we learn as a pupil, we just take whatever is told to us and we write it down, right? But the judge doesn't do that. Now, granted, you might be thinking, well, when I was a student, I didn't take it. That's fine. Then you were acting as a judge. But I'm just saying that the, the, the main notion of a, of a pupil is that you write down what you're told. You learn it by rote. That's where we get the term, right? By rote. You just you, you are imbibing these, these ideas. And to some extent, that's how natural science is sometimes done, according to Kant. Not when it's done well, but when it's uh, in practice, it's sometimes done that way. That's not the proper way to do anything that's a science for Kant. Right? The proper way is to act like a judge. And what does a judge do? In your opinion, demands to you... be demands to be shown something to to have it proved. You know, it's a you, it wants to the judge wants to be convinced. Uh, so you think metaphysics can rise to the level of a science? Prove it to me. And you imagine the judge like sitting up at the one of those English you know old English judges with the with the white <laughs> the white wig or whatever. 
Uh, yeah, I like that. I like that you bring up English judges because English ju- judges do something that American judges tend not to do. U.S. judges tend not to do, which is they ask questions, yeah. right? The judges usually in in the U.S. court system usually let uh, the lawyers do. The, it doesn't really matter though. The point is that questions are being asked. It's not just that you're writing down what's ever being told to you. You are testing. You're asking. You do, you put the witness on the stand, right? It's it's very different. Think about think about that, right? I mean, some of us probably do this to our teachers and professors, but for the most part, we're just in there writing things down, learning. But if you put take the teacher to task, that's putting them on the witness stand, right? And it's it's not simply taking whatever they have to say at face value. It's testing what they have to say against your own set of uh, ideas as to what is logical or reasonable and what is not. Yeah. And this is great because it helps to foreground in a really dramatic way that question of a priori knowledge. You know, it, it, it's like it raises that question, well, what can I know about uh, about the powers and the limits of reason independent of experience? Show me. And there's that sort of demand to be shown that, you know, that, that Kant is saying you are going to uh, you are going to have that position as the judge. Great. Right. So we have a few things to unpack here in just the title of the book. He's, he's dramatically introduced the title of the book, right? <laughs> that, 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 uh, that this book is necessary to combat indifferentism, but it's also sort of the, the necessary outcome of that indifferentism. It's, uh, the, that indifferentism is not just laziness. It's, it's looking for things to be submitted to the power of judgment. Well, here it is. I'm, I'm submitting reason to the power of judgment. Let's see how the court has to be set up. Let's see the kind of questions that will be asked, and a lot of them will be why questions and how questions, just like in a court of law. How did you come to do this? Why did you do this? Right? Uh, looking for motive, in essence. Uh, and then we have this idea of the eternal and unchangeable laws. Right? And we're... We're uh, as Newtonians, we should be comfortable with this idea of eternal and unchangeable laws, but maybe not as applied to reason. And so there's that element of it. And then you just have the the four words, three of which are problematic. I'm I'm assuming of is not all that problematic. Uh, but we have critique, pure, and reason. So what is a critique uh, in in Kant's way of thinking? Do you think um, that he's investigating the uh, basically? turning reason back on itself to discover its boundaries. All right. So, so it's turning reason back on itself. It's a critique is always a critique is not, is not mere criticism, right? A critique is from within. So we can criticize things from without. I've never, I've never uh, made a movie in my entire life, but I've written criticism of film, right? That's one of the things that I do, Uh, but that's, that's outside of it. A critique is from within. When I'm critiquing something, I'm embedded in it. And, of course, I can't step outside of reason. That's Kant's whole point. There's no – yeah, it, it would be kind of interesting to think about. Uh, maybe that's Antonin Artaud or something, right? A, an irrational critique, criticism of reason. But uh, for the most part, we don't think that's possible or certainly Kant wouldn't allow that to be possible, right? That, that uh, critique of reason is necessarily a critique, not a criticism in, in my sort of dichotomy here because you have to do it from within, in his Reflexionen, that, that uh, set of, of notes that, he, that uh, was published later, so this one supposedly from 1769, so um, relatively early in his move toward this notion of the critique, he writes uh, that a critique is a science not for bringing forth, 
but for assessing certain things in accordance with rules of perfection. Thus, metaphysics is a science for assessing cognitions from pure reason. There are a couple things I like about, about this sentence, which is why I'm bringing it out. So first of all, you can see it's not a science that brings forth, it's not a practical science, that, that what a critique is doing is it's assessing certain things in accordance with the rules of perfection. If this thing is supposed to work, if I'm supposed to have cognitions, then then how do I do that? What, what are the things that are necessary? Yeah, for that? this is actually yeah. sort of the judge uh, metaphor is helpful here, because we imagine someone making sure we're following the rules and procedures of whatever game we're playing. Right. Right. And so the metaphysics, notice how he defines metaphysics. It's kind of a deflationary definition. If you're, if you're like a Leibnizian and you're really committed to metaphysics as, as showing God and showing the really confusing underlying nature of reality that we're these monads that, uh, that, that are windowless monads and so on, this is deflationary because what he's saying is metaphysics in its real essence is a science for assessing cognitions from pure reason. Now we haven't dealt with the prior reason part of it yet, and we'll get to that next. But notice the emphasis is on cognitions, which in German is, is Erkenntnisse, right? Uh, or, or I guess cognitions, Erkenntnissen, right? Um, and forgive my pronunciation, but uh, sometimes people translate this as knowledge, but that's probably not a good way to do so, to do it, because first of all, we don't tend to say, unless you're like Derrida or something, knowledges. Right. Some postmoderns, I suppose, might do that. But we don't usually say knowledges. It's not a pluralized word for us. Knowledge is a kind of all encompassing singular for for English. So the the very fact that he uses it in plural over and over again should give us pause. But also the air in air Kentnissa or air Kentnissen is kind of like that. Right. So it's that knowledge. It's knowledge of that of things right it's ways of grasping objects in the world exactly exactly and i think that's an important part of what he's after here right so metaphysics here is in some ways metaphysics that we would think of it's a way of getting out of ourselves but we get out of ourselves all the time right physics is undergirded for kant by a metaphysics it has to be right um (laughs) it's (laughs) underwritten by just the basic way in which we connect to a world that's outside of us, which we don't have total control over. Yeah, actually, a quick question about um, about terminology here. <coughs> Sometimes he uses um, cognition in a sort of general way, the way that he does at the beginning with reason. Uh, but sometimes he seems to mean it very specifically as conceptualization or uh, stuff associated with the power of understanding. Um, do you think that he's doing the latter right now when he's talking about a critique of pure reason? Run that by me one more time. I'm, when, I, when he uses I, the word cog, his cognitions, or you know, right, um, is it is it specifically conceptualizations in the sense of what the understanding is doing, or is it just everything that the mind is doing? Um, yeah, ah, I think probably the latter in this case, right? Because no, that's 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 important because you have the. Um, you you have the the various types of judgment. You have the determinative, the regulative, and the reflective, right? And I think he wants to have cognition in in the larger sense. It's the same thing as reason, right? You can have reason in the larger sense that covers all the things that go on with me relating to the world or you relating to the world. And then you can have reason, which is really 
the practical part of that, right, which is the more limited uh, notion of, of reason, where you have understanding and reason as these two, the two sort of the king and queen in a way, mm-hmm. and I don't know which is which uh, necessarily, of, of the faculties. Um, and then the same might apply to cognitions, although I'm not, I'm not positive, but it, it, it might be worth hanging on to that, that question, yeah. uh, you know, way down the line when we get to the third critique, uh, I think he uses cognitions in a more sort of precise way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because we have all the non-cognitive, uh, elements that go into, into the reflective judgment, but notice that even then, and I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves now, but even then, and I talk about this a little bit in other podcast episodes, so it's not such a bad thing. But uh, it, when you're dealing with the the power of judgment and aesthetic judgment, he says that that we are um, judging it as though it's related to a concept that we can't fully determine, right? So there's a kind of concept-like structure to it, just like there's this rule-like structure to everything we're doing um, that deals with the mind. And so even where the cognition doesn't have a concept and therefore can't be a fully a cognition and therefore it feels like it's non-cognitive, there's this cognitive element coming in all the time because it's something we're doing with our minds. It's something, or, or spirits, or whatever you want to call it, uh, in relation to the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, you're right. That's something that, that is a good, we should highlight that somewhere to be a, a touchstone that we keep coming back to. Sure. All right, so what about the pure? That's maybe, a, by now we should have a fairly easy answer to what is the pure in the critique of pure reason? Well, it's similar to what you've said with, uh, with mere, right, where it's just, it, it's just reason, so we, we don't have uh, experience involved. Right, so it's the it's the a priori yeah. in, in that sense, and it's the we have to keep uh, sort of filtering out all the mixtures because the a priori in in our sort of understanding of it, our indirect uh, looking assessing what we're doing, understanding of it is going to usually be mixed when we're talking about cause and effect, for instance. Even though that's a metaphysical claim, it's still mixed. With, uh, I, I see one billiard ball hit another, you know. Um, so what we have to do is is abstract from that to get to to the a priori, and then we a priori, and then we talked about uh, reason already that that we have these two levels in a sense of reason, and here the critique of pure reason really seems to be the, to me that higher level, right? Because most of this book is going to deal with the understanding. Um, so if it were if he were just writing about the faculty, it would have to be the critique of pure understanding, but it's not. It's the critique of pure reason because of, uh, to some extent, I ra- imagine, the second half of the book, right? Um, the so-called negative half of the book. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll lay out what I mean by that really quickly so it's not a, uh, a mystery. But, but uh, wait, just, that, to, just to summarize, so his, his right. title could have been something like A Reflexive Self-Assessment of A Priori Cognition. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a le- less attractive <laughs> title, but um, it's it's better in a German accent. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, the the typical take on this book is that there are two halves to it, right? There's the positive half and the negative half, and the positive half is saying this is what the understanding does, and I'm clarifying that for you so that you Kant's saying I'm not. It's not me. Kant is clarifying that for you, showing how everything works. And then you have the negative half, which is these are the limits to reason. And this is where reason keeps trying to go beyond itself into understanding the simplicity of the soul and the unifying element of the cosmos and God, uh, the nature of God. 
that's where reason sort of transgresses its limitations. And then, of course, practical reason shows why that the, the book of pra- uh, critique of practical reason shows why that's necessary, but only within the realm of practical reason. And that's a topic for another day. Um, we'll see that there might be some positive elements to that second half. Um, and Kant already kind of alludes to it is that this preface or the second one where he invokes the police, uh, it's the second mm-hmm. one. So we'll, we'll come back to that then. We'll, we'll leave that be for now. So let's, let's sort of finish up uh, this um, preface with, with um, just a few other things, right? Well, a very brief uh, detour since we were on, on this, this segment, but there's this little taste of one of my favorite things about the first preface is that he will just sort of do his, his thing even with an idea like indifference. So we get a little taste of philosophical thought there. Like he's trying to indicate something about indifference in general, in this uh, in that segment where he's he's bringing up the critique of pure reason, um, especially the sort of indifference that um, nowadays we might associate with what's sometimes called scientism, uh, it's that sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson type of assumption that like anything worth knowing can be known with certainty about anything outside. Uh, you know, it ha- it has to be in the hard sciences basically if we're if we're going to to know it, um, and so there's this kind of neat thing that he's doing where he's saying sometimes when there's enough genuine hostility, so it's not just indifference in the everyday sense of indifference, but there's something, there's something genuinely hostile in it when it's mixed in there. It's not just a a helpless lack of interest. uh, It's not just blindness. It rises to this level of a genuine challenge. Uh, So you can imagine indifference in the sense of the judge again, uh, this sort of master image of, of Kantian, of, of Kantian philosophy. Yeah, and let me work with that image for a second. That, to my way of thinking, it's a very lenient judge that Kant's bringing the bear here. Because unlike the sort of, uh, I guess, Neil Grass Tyson could be our, our example or, or someone like Sam Harris or whatever, where these things are, uh, it's almost the Tractatus by Wittgenstein where that last sentence is taken so seriously that like, like beyond this, there's no, you know, the, yeah. you can't speak of these things or whatever. And like, so therefore there's almost this um, prescription against talking about anything beyond that. And for Kant, that's not the case exactly. He does want to show limits, right? That, that we get into trouble as he puts it when, when the, the claims of uh, metaphysical claims extend uh, human cognition beyond all bounds of possible experience, which is what God and the soul necessarily does. And yet, he acknowledges over and over again that these are important parts of how we navigate the world. They're important parts of how we do things in the world. And without some of those assumptions, we don't have morality, which is something that Sam Harris doesn't account- countenance, as far as I know. Mm. I mean, I'm not an expert in all. Of, I'm not an expert in all of Kant, and I'm certainly not an expert in all of Sam Harris, but. The bit that I've read, his notion of determinism, which is obviously anti-Kantian, uh, or at least anti this part of Kant, right? I guess if I'm imagining, and you know, someone who knows more about Sam Harris can correct me, but if I'm imagining Sam Harris's reaction to Kant, it would be that if we think of metaphysics as being in two parts, as the the part of dealing with cognition, and that's the part that he's the positive part that he's doing with understanding, and that you can lay out how understanding works. That that even if Sam Harris doesn't particularly love all of the details of it, the basic project is something that he would 
give a thumbs up to. But the second part of it, that that uh, that there's this other part of metaphysics which Kant acknowledges if we try to do it the same way we do the first part, we get into trouble. And yet, the and yet, which is the lenient judge part to me, uh, is the part that Sam Harris would have to let go of. And yet, uh, these have important impacts on the way that we live and the way that we ought to live. And the ought is a big part for Kant. Right, that that if if I'm being somewhat glib, and I guess this is a little glib, you could take the the human human um, uh, guillotine, right? That the is and the ought can't ever be connected, and you can see that in Kant, and that the first part of metaphysics is the is, right? And so you have to treat the is in a certain way, and you can understand it, and, and within the bounds of sensibility and within human experience, possible experience, and so on, and that's the is. And that's, that's what the understanding and understanding the understanding does. But then you have the ought. And that the ought is an important part. In fact, to some extent, that's the most important part for Kant. He wants to get all this straight because he thinks moral behavior is a real thing that needs to, to be a concern. Mm -hmm. That it's not just determinism. It's not just, well, you do what you can do. Yeah. Uh, his, right? his judge is not just uh, banging his gavel, screaming silence. He's, uh, he's also asking, what, what can we do? He wants to know the powers uh, yeah. the, this is where uh, I guess the judge metaphor kind of falls apart a bit. Like, uh, he, there's also a legislature in there, you know, that's, that's, that's involved. Yeah. Right. Because the, the, the judge here, and it's not just the what can, but the what ought we to do. And that's a, an important thing for, for Kant, the ought. Uh, he really is one of the great philosophers of duty. Um, and he really feels that we have moral obligations to each other. Um, and that that can't be dismissed either as something that we simply can't talk about at all, which is how some people, I think, take Kant, right? In, in the sort of uh, Tractatus Wittgenstein sense of, well, beyond that, there's nothing more to say. Um, there's plenty more to say. You just can't say it in the same way for Kant. Um, you have to, to come, about it, come at it from a different point of view. Um, the other thing that you can't leave it to is pure feeling. Kant was very interested in uh, the, the English and their take on moral sensibility, um, and to some extent Rousseau, but, uh, who, who shared some of those ideas. But um, he doesn't think that you can just leave it to sentiment, because that leads you into all sorts of other problems as far as he's concerned. All right, I want to finish with one last thing, which is the four C's. Right? Or do, did you want to jump in? Oh, no, go for there? it. Oh, right. You got these 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 four C's that he goes through, uh, and we're really interested um, in, in in just a few of them, right? So he says that that the, to some extent, what you need is completeness, right? That you have to reach all the ends of what reason can do. Comprehensiveness, you have to reach them all together. So you so in order, this is that first principle thing. In order to really understand what's going on here, you can't just see various things of what reason does, but you have to see all of them. Uh, certain modes of reason's uh, operation, but you have to see all of them because they're all interconnected and they um, only make sense in light of the whole, which is why he's, he has that whole thing about books that could have been shorter were they not so short or could have been longer were they not so long or whatever, uh, that, that weird pun of his, where he's basically saying that what, what you need here is a clear sense of the whole in order to really understand it. And that's why he can't give you endless examples, which he will try to do in other books, right? And he says that in some ways that would have been easier. But, of course, that's not true because uh, all the commentary on Kant that tries to um, give concrete examples, th that's where it gets hard. So, so he's, he might not be right with that part. 
then the third C is certainty, right? Uh, that the, the chief question um, that's being explored in the deduction for him is, quote, what and how much can understanding and reason cognize free of all experience? So what's the certainty, the a priori certainty, the pure, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, clarity, that, you, that, that normally what would, would do would be to provide logical clarity uh, um, through concepts that's not just intuitive, and then you would, you would add the clarity through uh, examples, right? And he says that, well, you can't do that because you need that sense of the whole. So notice how even completeness, comprehensiveness, uh, clarity, and um, uh, certainty, the, that those have to be related in the mo- their own selves, right? That, that part of having that completeness or having a pure view of that completeness is by having a clarity of the whole uh, and not obscuring it by trying to do too many things at once. Now, of course, the whole legacy of Kant is that uh, no one feels that he did all of it as completely as he might have, and therefore you're losing some of the clarity. But that's perhaps inevitable, right? That any any philosophy is a kind of uh, stance. It's a, it's a love of wisdom, not a uh, secure holding of knowledge, right, of facts that are indisputable. And as much as Kant tries to make this a science, and we'll talk about that more in the next segment after this little break, uh, there's no philosophy that can truly live up to that level of systematicity. And Kant is aware of that, and that's why uh, many years after writing this first preface, he decided he needed another another crack at it. Right, yeah. That's and that'll be our first question in the next segment. Why rewrite this preface? Especially, and I think there's a lot to be said for the A preface. So why bother with the B preface at all? Uh, let's turn to that next. So we have the second preface as well after the first. It's many years later. Let's sort of set the stage. It's, it's many years later, and Kant is looking back uh, and also kind of looking forward. He's, he's looking back at criticisms and responses that probably made him feel misunderstood. Um, he's already written this this uh, response to them, this prolegomena, so maybe he thinks he wants another crack at it, especially if there's going to be another edition. Uh, but he's also looking forward. He's trying to set up 
not just this book, but um, a large what he sees as a larger project. And uh, the next the next one on his list is this uh, this critique of practical reason as well, which is mainly about morality. Um, and so there are some some issues I guess we'll talk about now because uh, there's 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 a lot of a lot of meat in the in this second edition preface. Uh, we want to talk about what the a priori can do other than just be limited by a critique. Uh, there's this two-world theory that he, he brings in uh, about appearances and the in itself, and he, and he really hammers on that more than he did in the, in the, first, uh, the first edition preface. Um, so what does this distinction between appearances and the in itself limit uh, in a negative way, and then what does it allow in a, in a positive way? Uh, and there are also certain uh, limits of knowledge that he wants to, to make room for faith. This is uh, related to uh, related to also I think his uh, his second critique. And uh, and and Chad, uh, you mentioned this neglected hypothesis, and I'm I'm really fascinated by this uh, this this third hypothesis. So we can get to that too. Uh, but very broadly speaking, um, his whole sort of framing of this of this second edition preface. Is that he wants, and, he, and he, I think he repeats this phrase a lot, or something like it. He wants to put metaphysics on the secure path of a science, and he loves this the secure path of a science. And he says, "Well, logic did it, uh, math did it, even even natural science has done it." Um, and they they all shared this one feature. Uh, they had, there are distinctions that we're going to get into, but they all did share this one feature that it happened suddenly when they when they became secure. Uh, so there's this revolutionary aspect to it, and uh, along the way he wants to introduce what he means by by reason, and we, we've already talked about that a bit. Uh, the side of science that involves reason also involves a priori cognition, um, and he introduces certain distinctions that are going to be important for him. Again, not just in in this critique, but in the next one, uh, such as this distinction between the determinative or theoretical uh, cognition and regulative or practical cognition. Uh, so yeah, let's move on to, uh, or I guess move back to this uh, this idea of the secure path of a science. Uh, do you have any initial comments on this? Yeah, okay. So so what is it that defines a science for him, right? If he's, if the idea is that he, he wants to get the cognitions, and once again, we're dealing with cognitions, right? So that uh, knowledge, knowledge of, of that in the world. And he wants to um, make sure that it's traveling the secure course of science. And as you said, he, he's learning from three sciences, right? Uh, logic, math, and natural science. And so one of the things that I think is interesting about the opening of this preface is that we get these different little lessons that one might learn um, in trying to apply the notion of science to metaphysics. Um, and metaphysics needs that for him uh, because he he recognizes that the senses, that sen uh, empirical knowledge, can't give you an experience of necessity, that that's got to come from somewhere else. And so if, if and secure knowledge, just to make this absolutely clear, uh, for him, secure knowledge re relies upon necessity because if it's, if it's just Hume, if it's just about custom, if, if you know, um, every time I have a little rubber ball and I drop it to the ground, it bounces up, but there's always this idea that one day it might not, 
right, uh, and not because somebody's messing with me, then I don't have any real secure knowledge, right? That's the whole thing about magic, right? We, we, we get excited by magic because we know something happened that should not have happened. It wouldn't be magic if we, I mean, I, I sort of assume Hume isn't terribly open to magic in one sense, if I take him absolutely seriously, because all it really does is it breaks with his custom. It doesn't really break with any underlying commitments, right? Um, so here you have this idea of, of, of necessity as being the most important part of a science, or at least of the science of, of metaphysics. So what does he learn from, from logic, right? He learns a couple things at least. First of all, logic is, has limits, right? He says that, pe that, that uh, people have tried to add things to logic, psychological aspects, metaphysical aspects, anthropological aspects, but all that does is it muddies the waters, Logic already lays out its own um, parts, and it's relatively complete. He says since Aristotle that there's been very little corrected in logic since Aristotle, right? And this is, of course, important because he learns a lesson from logic that he hasn't announced yet, which is that our, uh, our faculty of understanding basically operates along the lines of logic, that, that logic is not just something that we've discovered it's it's our basic way of thinking that's what he says here he does kind of say it i guess because he says that the the point of logic is that it's just the pure forms of thinking of how we must think it's the the nothing but as he puts it it proves nothing but the formal rules of all thinking whether this thinking be empirical or a priori right whatever origin or object it may have and whatever contingent or natural obstacles it may meet with in our minds and what it doesn't so, deal with is objects right it's only dealing with itself and its forms right and so you can see the the what he likes about logic is sort of the the uh self-contained self-limiting aspect of it Right, that it all follows out of its own underlying logic, its own the own conditions, the things that necessarily relate uh, from its principles. Everything falls out in this very rule bound manner, and it and that you know it, he even uses the word, or at least the translation does, elegance. Right, that the thing about uh, logic is this elegant. Everything follows from the things above it, and the things below it are, are necessarily related to the things above it, right? So they fall out in, the, in that Aristotelian manner where uh, the first principle or the axioms will have certain necessary postulates that then, once they're all completed, point back toward the sort of wholeness, the clarity and the comprehensiveness yeah. of the thing. It's only the wholeness, though, right? Uh, we don't have this extra... Sometimes elegant also means beautiful, but there's not that extra little something in it. It's all he even basically says it's already done. It's already perfect. It's already complete. And that's not necessarily an exciting thing. It's kind of this is the logic is almost his easiest and most boring uh, example of what what he's after with with this. Yeah, you think so? Hmm? But why? Why what makes it boring in through a Kantian lens? Well, there's nothing more to do with it. It doesn't point beyond itself. Yeah, but I, I think for Kant, that's not necessarily boring. It's complete. And so, I don't know. I mean, I'm not willing to let go of the aesthetic aspect of this to some extent. I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that much, 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 well, much if, later. If you find, but, I mean, there's glue, right? But that's all there is. It's just a big gluey <laughs> system. Right. But it's the glue that holds all your thoughts together. And mm. it's what allows you to see what is a good path of thinking Versus a bad path. Okay, of I guess we can agree it's one side of, of beauty. It is one side of of something uh, of something good.
Yeah, I mean, since since at least Thomas Aquinas, claritas, clarity, has been an important component of what we think of as as the beautiful. But but aside from that, that seems to me to be the the those are the uh, lessons we learn from logic that a science properly is self limiting, that there are certain things that are within it and certain things that are without it, and the science sort of defines itself in that sense, right? And that doesn't make it purely analytic. Uh, there's a synthetic element; it's grabbing on the other. Th- uh, other elements, although logic may be purely purely analytical, uh, that might be a uh, distinction worth making. Um, but uh, but it, it, it a science properly is self binding and can be completed, right? And so it's uh, that's why I guess I was objecting to the idea of it being boring because ultimately any science and and for a scientist in the Kantian model you ought not to be bored by what you're doing but uh, but the goal is completion ultimately for any science yeah I guess I get a sort of an algorithmic aspect to it that I I think even he is not particularly interested in okay hmm. I'll think more about that so what do we learn if that's what we learned from um logic what do we learn from math well there's one more thing we learn from logic actually which we don't learn from logic but we learn in thinking about logic which is the distinction between the theoretical and the practical yeah. right and so you have the theoretical which is determining uh, its object it's what I, I see the squirrel i recognize it as a squirrel i determine the object i subsume it under a concept right but then there's the practical which is the making actual things that when i'm dealing with morality which is a practical science then i'm making actual the condition of goodness or the condition of happiness or the condition of uh, betterment of the world or whatever, however we want to deal with that when we deal with it. Yep. So what do we learn from math? Yeah, math is interesting. He, uh, he starts out by saying for, uh, he, he does this with all of them, but uh, math in many ways the hardest for me, so maybe you'll have some insight into it. Uh, but he starts out by saying math was basically just groping around for most of its history. I think he names the Egyptians in, uh, in that. Um, yeah. And then finally, there was this uh, this revolution where, uh, you know, it could have been Thales, it could have been someone else, but one of the, one of the early uh, sort of pre-Socratic philosophers came up with this new way of thinking about math that brought that brought the thinker into it. You know, you know they figure out the properties of their mathematical objects or their geometrical objects uh, by virtue of what they're putting into it. Right. So this is uh, there are a couple of things here that uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts of. First of all, let's let's deal with the obvious thing, uh, which is what does it mean that they're putting their own thoughts into it? What is it? uh, He gives us this little potted history of dealing with the triangle. Right. And what are the in your mind? What are the um, important aspects of that little little story that he tells? Well, basically, the, the important thing that I think he's trying to get across, although I don't quite grasp the how this works in the math but the the idea that he's getting across is that there are these a priori ideas that you set forth as axioms in order to produce something almost like logic like a logical system uh, but then these axioms themselves we find within ourselves somehow um, and that's that's the part that I'm like where where how <laughs> yeah and what what makes this uh, I just I just don't get it basically 
Well, I think there's probably a platonic element here, right? Because Plato says something similar. Because Plato's the, uh, one of the, the philosophers early on that says, well, we don't really see triangles out in the world. We see things that are close to triangles, but they're not real triangles. And the circle that you draw on the chalkboard, that's not really a circle. There's always going to be some imperfections um, in there somewhere where you, you just inevitably screw up or that the material doesn't, doesn't conform to the perfect circle or the perfect triangle so the perfect circle and the perfect triangle are noetic in in fashion there there are um experience of these pure forms in the, but kant points out something important that they're not pure forms except pure forms as instantiated in as as manifest in space and time specifically space uh with with these aspects yeah so you cannot right. directly intuit them right you have you can draw a line in the sand and then say something like let's let's act as if this line was perfectly straight let's act as if this line went on for infinity and then we can move on from there right exactly so so Notice that there's something interesting with math, right? That it's dealing with the pure intuitions of, of space and time, mostly space when you're dealing with, with geometry, right? If you bring in astronomy in, in the old sense of what astronomy meant, which was just these solids that move, uh, then you have time. But uh, but but with uh, with geometry of, of, of and, and um other ideas about math uh for the most part you're just dealing with space but there are these things that you're constructing not not things that you're seeing and then generalizing about even if there's some there's to some extent it's true that you did that uh, historically he says that the revolution the revolutionary moment is where you realize that those things out in the world that are triangular are not pure triangles, but that pure triangles have certain necessary elements to them. That they the angles add up to 180 and uh, and so on. And that and that the 180 thing he he seems to feel is not just a fallout of the definition. It's not purely analytical. There's something synthetic about it that's more than just saying it's a closed system with three lines, three straight lines. And yet, it's necessarily related. Now, we might say, well, I don't know. Is that really <laughs> synthetic? And I, I I, don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, but he seems to feel that it is. Or maybe right? the synthetic moment happens at the beginning with the, uh, with the earliest axioms. And then you build it up uh, more analytically. Let's, an let's analyze what happens when we, uh, when we start with these axioms. Yeah. Yeah, and the you know I, I think about mathematical functions and logical functions, right? Let x be such and such, mm. and and so the fact that you use the word let there, I think, is is interesting, right? Because that's part of what he's talking about is this idea that we set forth these postulates or these uh, this, this notion of what things are, and then we we place them within um, the sensory experience. Not as though a triangle really is something that lives in space, but the way of dealing with it. it it becomes spatial, right? Um, but w the way that it lives, in essence, is these necessary elements of it that then translate into a spatial experience. I'm not putting that as well as I might, but uh, but there's this sense of let it, right? Where where the the boundedness of it, the the veridity of it, is coming in part from us and our way of dealing with our our um, transcendental aesthetics of of, of space. Mm. Um, now, why why the revolution? This part I honestly 
don't have as strong of an opinion about uh but but you indicated some interest in that why why are why is it that these three and we haven't come to the revolution yet in natural science which you can see i mean we do talk about that as a revolution maybe that's where it's coming from yeah. right? the revolution in natural science but we don't usually talk about the revolution in math in the same way that we think of the the uh you know the the notion of the beginnings of empirical science with with uh, Francis Bacon and Galileo and so on. it's not the same we don't usually posit it as a revolution but you're right he sort of sees Aristotle as a revolution in logic Thales or whoever it is that would be in those shoes uh, as a revolution in math and then Galileo and he doesn't I don't know remember if he mentions Bacon but uh, I yeah. would put Bacon in there mm-hmm. as well so why why is this story of the revolution so important to him. Well, actually, let's let's try to get a, a glimmer of that by just talking about the science part, the physics part, and that's what when he sees when he says natural science, he really seems to have physics in mind, which is mm-hmm. useful because there's this uh, intimate connection between physics and mathematics, uh, in a way that's very clear for I think at least his his readers at the time and even for us today. Uh, so yeah, what again he seems to be pointing out what reason itself is doing according to its own its own devices. Um, that the revolution has something to do with turning toward turning inward, right? Um, that somehow we're not just passively observing the mathematical structures. Um, you know, we, we have to say act as if there's some uh, perfect principle under underneath the uh, the triangle. And the same thing goes with natural phenomena. We have to act as if there's some um, pure. A perfect thing underneath it that we can that we can cognize this coherence that we can cognize and that's um, the way that he sort of frames that is that it's us who are acting as the judges that we have to compel uh, nature to answer uh, our questions but uh, yeah again I wonder I wonder what your take on just the the physics or natural science part of that is well I, it's probably not very deep but uh, the thing that i take from what he's doing is is along the lines of what you're saying that what what let's let's think about hume as our uh counterpart here our our antagonist right um hume can say that there seems to be a role to things that are going on in nature the, the billiard balls right if i hit the billiard ball square on uh it will go forward in the same direction as i hit it if i hit it at a certain angle it'll it'll answer with that angle that seems to be a role so you can you can do through empirical observation you can say there seems to be a role what you can't say is that there must be a role right yeah. and that's what you can't you can't stipulate necessity and that's what kant wants um, and so that has to come from somewhere other than observation. And so it can't be, and I, uh, we're peeking into the Copernican turn here, but it can't be that our knowledge conforms to objects, because if that were the case, then we would not be so committed to the notion of necessity. And we really are, right? If if I if I know that I'm hitting the billiard balls in the exact right way and I, I do the uh, slow motion uh, videography of it so I can prove, and then the thing, I, I hit it on the left side and it went to the left, something's wrong in the universe, <laughs> right? And I feel that something is wrong. 
it's not that it it's not that the rule usually works out this way and I'm just like oh well it usually does this I guess it did it a little different uh, differently in this case I don't believe in that as being a contingent thing if if the if the physics of it works out so that I'm hitting it to the left it should move to the right yeah you feel that's you feel that necessity in your core when that's happening right so is the that, is the human empiricist is the, he uses I can't uses this example of the pupil versus the judge right is the human right. the pupil then the one that just kind of uh, receives, learns whatever it can from uh, whatever it receives through the senses. Yeah, and that's one of the things I like about Hume is that he's not only the pupil, he admits that he's a relatively poor pupil, <laughs> that we all are, right? Yeah. That, that that we what we have to do to be uh, sort of okay with that is we just recognize that uh, there's only so much we can learn and let's get out to the playground and do what we feel like doing, right? Uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but uh, but therefore, you know, all the things that are thought of as being the the big moments of learning for Hume, those are those are the things that you could consigned to the dustbin or the fire, the flames, as he puts it, right? And all the stuff about God and so on, because you can't you can't prove it, um, and so you you're you're learning what you can from nature, but ultimately. Nature doesn't conform the reason, and reason is a pretty poor pupil. It's very limited. It can only see certain things. It's better off uh, just accepting what it what it understands through custom, through habit, and then you know moving on to other kinds of experiences, other kinds of ways of dealing with each other that aren't necessarily about reason, but about feeling and and so on. Um, Kant doesn't want. Kant wants reason to be a judge, not a not a pupil, much less a poor one, uh, and so it has to understand where some of its rules are coming from. And the judge metaphor, I think, works for that reason. Uh, when you're in a courtroom, you recognize that the judge didn't make up the laws, of course, but he or she is the conduit for those laws. The laws are coming through and being being read through and interpreted through. The judge and the application of the laws. Yeah, it has to know something yeah. about those laws. That's the critique part of it. It has to sort of right. look look at itself. Um, and so he's saying, well, let's let's try out what Copernicus did. And uh, this is that Copernican turn um, that we mentioned briefly in an earlier episode. But uh, I wanted to take another crack at it because I, I felt like I didn't really do it justice. Uh, so the idea is let's try out something like Copernicus did, a kind of, ex- and he uses the word experiment, it's a kind of experiment, uh, and switching up our assumptions, and then maybe we'll clear up uh, old and ongoing complications and, and find, a, you know, find a better path forward. Um, so this, this, this particular, the way he talks about it in the preface has made me want to give this stuff another go, and uh, maybe this will give some, uh, some food for thought to, to others as well. So I can think of three ways uh, to go about interpreting this this analogy, uh, I guess in a, a range from a, the most specific and results-oriented um, to the most general and method-oriented, and only the most, only that last one, only the most abstracted methodological reading, I think really, really works, or at least is kind of friendly to Kant, and uh, this might say something about his approach. So the first First interpretation, uh, which is about result um, of the investigation, or the doctrine, if you prefer that, uh, what was the conclusion, the doctrine, the result of the Copernican revolution? Well, it was to treat the Earth uh, as revolving around the sun. Uh, but of course, Kant's whole deal is the opposite of that, right? Broadly speaking, he wants to say 
this is very very broadly speaking he wants to say reality revolves around humans uh so that's that's the earth right cosmologically speaking so it's kind of silly to think that this is what kant means yeah, even if it's also it can be revealing uh depending on what you're up to uh, for example this uh, french philosopher a recent french philosopher uh named uh, kentem meyasu um he's basically uh, taken this line as part of his own project. Uh, it's in this book, After Finitude, from about 15 years ago. Uh, he says Kant didn't do a Copernican revolution. He did a Ptolemaic counter-revolution. Um, and of course, Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic system is geocentric. It was the pre-Copernican system. So that's that's the first interpretation. Um, another way to go, as I mentioned, is about methods rather than results. Uh, but even here, there's some ambiguity, I think, because... The analogy might or might not be about the specific manner of the Copernican revolution. Uh, and in fact, the more specific interpretation is even supported by the text, so it gets kind of weird here. Um, but here it is. Here's the second interpretation. Uh, Kant can be read as saying that Copernicus inverted the old assumption about heavenly bodies revolving around the earth. He turned the old system on its head. So let's do the same thing. Let's invert an assumption about metaphysics. Uh, the old view is that the mind discovers law-like principles uh, by analyzing whatever info is given to it, but uh, what if the mind doesn't just process things? This is the pupil idea. What if the mind doesn't just process sense data or ideas? What if people themselves are law-bound in such a way that, um, you know, that forms and shapes what they discover? In this sense, we determine how nature is given to us. Now, as I, I, uh, I said before, this Copernicus analogy I don't think quite holds together because it's really not a simple inversion. I mean, he, he talks about it as if it were. I think at some point he basically says, I don't conform to the objects, but rather the objects conform to me. Um, but obviously I do conform to the objects. His point is just that how I do that, the way I come into some kind of fit with it, is partly determined in advance by something that I bring to the table. So it's a, I think what he's actually doing is a little bit more complicated than just a simple inversion. Um, and so I, I was kind of mulling over that and trying to think there's got to be a way to make this analogy work. And I, the, the, my, best, my best crack at it is probably the most boring, but it's, uh, here it is. Um, the idea is that Copernicus's uh, famous heliocentric solution came after a much more important moment in his intellectual journey. Uh, where he decided to focus on the framework rather than on individual issues that were troubling him, on these little problems that he was confronting. So instead of plugging up various leaks in the old Ptolemaic paradigm, uh, Copernicus switched his attention to that system itself, to the paradigm itself. Uh, and this would be the analogy with Kant. He wants to switch our attention from the old trench warfare of metaphysics uh, over unsolvable problems uh, where each each new leak, uh, seem, when you plug it up, it opens a new one and that sort of thing. And instead, he wants to focus on the infrastructure, the theoretical infrastructure or ground for uh, any future metaphysical explanation. And that would be, of course, uh, the mind itself, you know, the powers and limits of the mind. So, yeah, that's that's basically my take on the Copernican thing. It's not quite as simple as an inversion and it's certainly not just a, not just a doctrine uh, but it's it's something both deeper and simpler than that. It's just about this uh, switch to the paradigm rather than to individual problems. Now, one of the things that you said along the way 
I think is is interesting, and I, I want to sort of have you tease it out a little bit. And I'm not I'm not sure what you meant by it, so I'll just ask. You said uh, you know that Kant's way of putting it is that the objects um, conform to us rather than we conform to the objects. And you're like, of course, that's not entirely true. I do conform to the objects. Well. Why? How do? How do we conform to the objects? I mean, this this is bringing us to the sort of dis- distinction between the two world theory and the two aspect theory that people talk about, mm. right? In the in the um, dissertation, Kant very clearly has a two world theory that the world of appearances is one thing, and then the world as it really is is another thing. It's almost a platonic division between the world of being and the world of becoming. And yes, the world of becoming is in some way a reflection of the world of being, but their their logics are separate, their ways of knowing are separate, and so on. Different faculties, everything is separate for him, right? And, and in the dissertation, you truly can know things in themselves. In the critique, uh, and really the whole critical... Um, move for for Kant, so everything from here on out, you can't know things in themselves, right? Um, And it seems to be fairly clear in this preface that it's a two-aspect, not a two-world theory. Mm. There are some people who have qualms with that, that feel that when he first introduces the Copernican turn, that it does seem like it's a two-world theory. But then later he says very clearly, we're dealing with one and the same object uh, from two different aspects, as it is in itself and as we see it, as it appears to us, right? Now, that's where I have a feeling is the linchpin, and I know I'm taking a long time to ask the question, but I have a feeling that's the linchpin for you, right? But uh, I'm curious to see how you work it out. So, you, how do you have, how is it that we conform to objects as opposed to some aspect of the object conforming to our way of seeing the world when it seems like the only thing that we have, I, I see it as a kind of filtering mechanism, yeah, right? Yeah. That, okay. Like a net, and, and right? That's what right. So some things, right, exactly. So if I'm catching uh, tuna, then I make the net a certain way, and I'm going to catch more than just tuna, but there's also a lot of things, plankton, whatever, that's going to get through the net uh, that I'm not going to, it's not going to show up to me if the only thing that shows up is the, the stuff that actually remains in the net, right? Um, so so if I think of the ocean and all of the things in it as one object, then the net is filtering out only the things that I can catch. Doesn't mean that those things weren't in the ocean. Clearly, they were, but uh, but they are only they're also part of a larger system. Some of which is you know yeah. And and notice that the it. net is a priori in some way, right? Uh, so often when he uses the that term a priori, I will rightly or wrongly sometimes put in oh he, he might be thinking of somewhere in the back of his head. The thing in itself, the noumenal, that there's there's something already there. Um, and then what's kind of interesting and weird about that is that he's talking about a net that can know itself. He's talking about a net that it's not just you know recognizing whatever it recognizes in the fish that it, that it catches, but it also recognizes its own limitations in a certain way. That it, it can recognize there must be a fish there. There's something there even if all I have is this sort of shape, this fish-like shape in it. And so I, I guess a lot of uh, the difficulty in this in this whole passage where he's introducing the thing in itself is, I'm not even sure how to phrase it exactly, but, uh, you know, where is, is he really, is he saying that we can know something a priori about ourselves? Can we know the human in itself better than we can know other things in itself? 
Okay, yeah, there might be, there's definitely two, maybe even three things to tease out of what you just said, right? First of all, was, and this is, of course, the big one for everyone, what is the status of the numeral? And you could take the easy way out and say Kant says, you can't know, so you can't know. But clearly, there's, we, if we believe the two-aspect theory of things, then we are having some experience, indirect experience, not of the numinal as such, but as of one of its effects, which is its appearance. Because if if on the if there's a two aspect theory, if there's the notion that it's the same thing, whatever this thing is, let's use my squirrel, right? And there's the the squirrel in itself, but there's also the way the squirrel shows up to me, and those are two sides of the same coin in in effect. Then the appearance is exactly what you would think of as an appearance. When I talk about my appearance. I mean the way that I look. There might be more to me than just the way that I look, right? Don't judge me just on my appearance. <laughs> but my appearance is a consequence of something about me, right? And the way I look to people who like balding men is going to be different than the way I look to people who can't stand balding men because, uh, spoiler alert, I'm balding. But uh, but I don't have any control over that, of course. But it doesn't mean that my baldiness is not something about me. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if it looks different to people who are predisposed toward it or p people who are predisposed against it. So there's that. What is the status of the numinal, which I think is incredibly tricky. I don't think there's any question that it's incredibly tricky. Um, and I'm just going to lay out all three things and then because they're all inspired by what you just said. And then you can pick up whatever you want. But the second problem to me, it seems, is is. Uh, that follows from your net analogy is how is it that we know the net? The net's operating, but do what way? In what way does the a priori uh, filtering device, or whatever you want to think of this, what are the uh, the a priori concepts, the a priori aesthetics? Right, when you're talking about space and time, how is it that we are aware of these things? Are we just self-aware of them? As long as we look back into ourselves, we see them, or do we have more of an indirect uh, awareness of them? How is it that that works? Um, those are the two two main things. And the third thing is a sort of consequence of that. Uh, so I don't know that it even is a separate thing exactly. But once we recognize that there is a, a net in place, can we make assumptions about the things that don't fall into the net? And again, to use my analogy um, of the, the plankton gets through. Sure, the plankton mostly gets through, but some of it might be stuck to the side of a dolphin or that or that we can understand through the digestive tract of the dolphin that there was plankton involved, even though we don't have a direct experience of it. And this sort of links my two previous questions. So that's why I'm not sure that it's a separate issue. It sort of uh, brings a kind of circular uh, element to all three, right? So we have the what can we say about the noumenal and our experience of the noumenal, which we can't directly experience by definition of Kant, but yet somehow we're aware of it, right? We can, think, we can think it, as he puts it. What's our awareness of the a priori? Like, is it direct? Is it indirect? How does that work? And, uh, and do we get some glimmer of the noumenal as a kind of uh, supplement or, or absence that we still somehow register? through that net of the of the a priori and take whatever you want and obviously these are not questions that <laughs> are going to end today they're, they're going to come back again and i don't have a good answer to any of the three uh I, i'm not sure who does necessarily but what, what's your crack at any of those three things well he kind of brings in this the, all, all of this is a single theme uh, around uh, anyone uh, following uh, around 17 to 18 and b 
Um, and he, he says at one point, experience itself is a kind of cognition requiring the understanding whose rule I have to presuppose in myself a priori. Um, so on the two aspects of one world theory, um, I think that's that's spot on because understand if we say understanding is here, it's not just uh, it's not just commenting on what we encounter from a distance, right? It's not just in another world looking at, you know, it's not just from the noumenal looking at the phenomenal. Um, it's it's in it. it. It mediates and shapes uh, what it encounters. So it's imbricated in that in that one world that has these two aspects to it. Uh, so once more, if we're going to say experience requires the understanding, it's the understanding doesn't just comment on things. It's not like just looking at it from from the outside, uh, from some sort of transcendent perspective. This is where that transcendental um, one world aspect comes in, right? Uh, it's it's mediating things. But then there's the second part to it, and that's where he says the understanding whose rule I have to presuppose in myself a priori. So this understanding, this us, whatever we are, we can say understanding in a very broad way at this point. Um, it has a certain structure. The mind has a certain structure, and these are cons, uh, a priori concepts that I must presuppose in order to experience objects. Um, so there must be a structure to the net in order for it to grasp things as it does. Um, and, and, and in order for a, uh, for us to be able to reliably grasp them, right? Yeah. I mean, you, if the structure of the net keeps changing, and one day it catches tuna, but the next day it only catches dolphins, you're not going to be a great fisherman, right? Especially if you can't predict when you're using one net versus the other. So it has to have some kind of underlying regularity. That's the importance of the rule-boundedness over and over again for Kant, whether it's about morality or understanding or, or even aesthetics, that, that the rule-likeness of, uh, of, of our experience of aesthetic form, all of that is important to him for the mere fact that we can talk about it. Otherwise, we can't really. There's no regularity. Yeah. There's no, no, there's a consistency foundation. to it. Uh, totally. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think, and, and the, the way that I've made sense of this issue in the past, and probably the, the, you know, Kant seems to intend it this way. Um, so maybe you can help me out here if I'm getting it wrong, but, uh, the way I, I've seen it is that my understanding, my, my whole conceptual apparatus is a, is this filter that shapes the way I experience things. Uh, like when you wear gloves or glasses or whatever, you, you helplessly experience the world in a certain way. Um, and it's that helplessness that has sort of caught me because this is where the two aspects of the world come into that come into some kind of conflict with that question of how do you know the net right how do you know the noumenal um, yeah I'm not sure if you want to step in here but I, I I do think that when he uses the word presuppose he himself is kind of assuming that we can know that the net can know itself in in certain ways that perhaps his own view of things uh, is is not going to allow. And this might be partly, we're going to get to it later, I'm sure, but partly because he wants to preserve uh, free will um, and God and the soul, right? Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. Right. I think those are two, I understand why you're bringing them up together, but I think they're actually two somewhat different things are importantly different in some ways that we can know the net we can know the structure of consciousness in a couple different ways ultimately you could see it almost again as aristotelian that we learn it through induction and then we prove it through deduction or we we present it through deduction um the again we return to this idea that most of the categories of understanding are just coming out of logic 
ultimately in the, their ways of relating but to that each other. That would be analytic, though, right? Uh, this is the analytic stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But but the um, but the way that we learned it was through the development of logic, and he doesn't have to do that work because, as he says, Aristotle did it, right? But he realizes that that logic is not just a external practice that uh, Aristotle came up with, and that seems to work pretty well. But that it's the actual form of our thinking that that's what Aristotle's real accomplishment was, um, and so. We can see the, the net in essence because we see that this way of thinking has worked for us over and over again and that we, we have a problem of, of other possible worlds, right? This is something that Peter Strawson mentions, mm-hmm. that, that we can imagine other possible worlds, but we can also imagine other worlds that would not be possible for us to cognize, that there are limits to the way that we process data Right. This is one of the things that happens in sci-fi things like Star Trek and so on. Think about the the uh, times where you can't actually see the alien force and you right. And they try to come up with some way that you can get a glimmer of it, but you can't get your sensory faculties totally around it. Right. Yeah. And the problem is that that always fails uh, to some extent in, in sci-fi because you got to show some. You got to have some way in f- for the audience to have an experience of it. But if you imagine a, 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 there might be a form of alien life, right, that, that we can't possibly process and therefore it's right here with us all the time and we can't process it, right? You get, and that's part of Kant's point is that you can learn a bit about that a priori by just in part not just the way that we actually do things but by working out ways in which things could show up to us at all. You can't have, I'm being too esoteric, let me concretize this. You can't have an experience of something without it fitting the concepts in general, without there being some element of quality, quantity, modality, and um, relation. And the things that seem to break the bounds of that, like God in some accounts of God, are unexperienceable by us and therefore create a sort of the problem of the Second part of metaphysics, the part where we get in trouble, the part that's not just about actual cognitions that of things that can be cognized, right? Or we can only experience it speculatively. We can only sort of comment on the, or you can we can think it as he says, but we cannot experience it. Right. Yeah, and that's not the way he uses speculative, right? Mm-hmm. He, or at least not in the translation by Geyer. The uh, speculative is is more along the lines of the. Determinative. So it's not the way that we always use speculative. Mm -hmm. It almost literally for him means the specular, that which you can see or 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 put in some kind of uh, conceptual and intuitive form. Um, and so there's this this kind of gap then that that with the noumenal, right? And this is where you get these these this problem of the Copernican turn. Uh, this idea that that. The two ways of, of having knowledge might be that our knowledge conforms to objects, in which case, where do we get necessity and all the problems of, uh, of the unconditioned? Or you might have uh, the objects conform to our knowledge. But there is this neglected hypothesis, this, uh, this alternative, this third way, which is uh, because uh, let me make it clear first. Uh, the fallout of that for Kant, since he takes the second one, uh, is that we cannot assume that the noumenal fits the parameters of the phenomenal. And since we experience things in space and time, and those are the big ones for him, the, the, the transcendental aesthetic, he doesn't think, in fact, he, especially in the second edition, he says outright that um, things in themselves are not spatiotemporal. 
Now, the part that people always forget and that um, that uh, I think is brought out well um, by Desmond Hogan, if you're looking, I'll, I'll try to put this on the website if you're looking for uh, things to read uh, about this kind of thing. Desmond Hogan points out that the part that people forget is that other aspects of our so-called a priori um, understanding of the world do seem to apply to things in themselves for Kant, or at least might apply to things in themselves, including elements of causality. Maybe not the way that we understand causality as being totally determinate, um, uh, where everything has to line up in a form of necessity, but that some aspects of causality and some aspects of other a priori things may apply to uh, the, the noumenal realm. But the neglected hypothesis is, well, what if yeah, we don't learn space and time from experience, so it's not Lockean in that sense. But that doesn't mean that, that the things in themselves aren't spatiotemporal. It's just we didn't learn the spatiotemporal from our experience of things uh, out in the world um, because we can't, uh, we can't, according to Kant at least, uh, get that from, from experience. But that doesn't mean that that's not, since we can't know how things are in themselves, how do we know they're not spatiotemporal? That, that, and this might be almost explained evolutionarily that we have developed in such a way to be pretty good observers of the world. And so even if the world in its, even if our experience of the world doesn't reveal to us the spatiotemporal, that doesn't mean that the world as such isn't spatiotemporal. Um, I'm not necessarily unpacking that as well as I might, but it's going to be something we come back to. So it's okay if it's a little vague at this point. Hmm. Did you want to jump in there? Or? Yeah. I mean, one thing I will I will just add to this is that in this in this preface, he's often associating the phenomenal side of things with the rule bound with deterministic, right you know, knowable stuff, and then this is part of when I was saying before that he this is part of how he's uh, his strategy for preserving things like free will. That seems to be what he's what he's aiming at with this distinction between the thing in itself and. Uh, and our experience of stuff because experience he also wants to say this is part of the secure path of a science part right he he wants to say that there we have room for making things very strictly deterministic very strictly rule bound um and all of that happens on the phenomenal side of the fence uh so then we can still you know there's still there's still a glimmer of freedom at least as if there's freedom on the in itself side. Yeah. And that's an important uh, aspect of this, right? Uh, again, that, that Hogan talks about a little bit, uh, quite a bit actually, uh, which is that, is it possible? Is it necessary for Kant that the noumenal realm is one of absolute contingency, right? Because if the idea that free will is being preserved on the noumenal realm then, then you would assume that there has to be some kind of absolute contingency. If it's not absolute, then it's then it's conditioned in some way, and then we can trace back, like Sam Harris does, and say there's no free choice, free will. There's no free choice. That all of it is determined by uh, your psychological and uh, chemical makeup and the things that happened before. And therefore, if we were um, percipient enough, uh, we could we could trace all the aspects of it, and and therefore negate the whole notion of of free will, that everything is determined. 
And Kant clearly doesn't want that. But at the same time, he doesn't want a lawless morality either, hmm. right? Morality is rule-bound. So you have, and then you have the, the other uh, typical problem that everyone recognizes, which is that, uh, and that's why you sort of say, well, is it a two-world theory after all, right? Uh, it's, it's not such a small world after all. It's a two-world after all. <laughs> because, uh, because then you say, well, if, if all of freedom is on the noumenal side and all of obligation and determinism is on the phenomenal side, then how do we get from one to the other? Right? Yeah. I mean, if, 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 and you could say, this is what my first crack at it would be. And, and we're going to see if this is sustainable. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I wanted with Eric to go through this whole stuff again, is that I've been wondering about this issue, uh, which I know is a very basic issue, and there's plenty of secondary literature on it, but there's so much secondary literature that it, you know, you can get different answers depending on what you're reading. And I want to see what I really think is the answer to this question. How is it that the noumenal connects to the phenomenal? And one crack at it might be that once things have happened, we can always find an explanation for them, right? Um, that doesn't mean that the explanation is really sufficient since we can't ground the unconditioned. So whatever it is that we get back to, we can't ultimately ground that. And that's the, 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 the sort of wellspring of possibility and contingency that he finds in the noumenal. But it doesn't mean that the noumenal is some boundless... Uh, undisciplined, indeterminate realm, and the phenomenal is totally uh, bounded and determined and so on, because there has to be some point of connection, some point of, of intrusion, some, um, uh, I suppose, uh, intervention hmm. that can happen from the numeral to the phenomenal for that to not be a two-world theory. And I'm totally uncomfortable with the idea that it is a two-world theory. Uh, and I think Kant is too. He says it very explicitly again and again, that he's dealing with two aspects of the one and the same thing. So there, ha there has to be some kind of hidden legislature, uh, at least within within humans, right, that, that can generate the rules that the judge is able to uh, to preside over, to, ar to articulate and to, uh, and to execute. Or maybe even Maybe legislature is too reasoned uh, an analogy. Maybe it's executive, right? That there's a choice that's being made. And we all know that executive orders are not always rational. They're, <laughs> they're, they're contingent. They're, that's the whole point of an executive order is it's not necessarily going to be the rule forever. It's what we're doing right now because of this situation, right? And then the judge goes back and decides whether or not that's something that can stand uh, and how it stands, right? And so they, I have to keep working this out, and we'll work this out together. But maybe that's the way to think of it, is that there, you have the, the noumenal as this sort of almost executive order kind of situation where there is a contingency element to it. But what does the judge do? The judge tries to figure out how that works within the greater scheme of things. So the judge finds a way in which it is determined and determinable, uh, but that's a post hoc, that's an after the thing yeah. kind of uh, reasoning, right? And since that's most of what we do in, in understanding things, that's why the world looks as deterministic as it is. But we feel in some way, and we have to gauge what the level of that feeling is, that we make a real difference in the world, that we do have an executive function in the world, that we make choices, and that therefore there's some element of contingency. And yet, I'm not sure I want to go the route of Desmond Hogan and say that the, this is a 
radical or a absolute contingency because hmm. he is he he does have as you pointed out i believe in the last episode uh this notion that we are most free when we are most following the moral law and we got to figure out what the hell that could possibly mean yeah and i, I do think kant kind of helps a little bit um or you know does, does the best he can in, the, in this preface when he's talking about where where we get a consciousness of these things you know where we get the glimmer of freedom and the soul and god and he says well we don't you know we don't just sit there uh like the dogmatic metaphysicians and prove god's existence or prove uh free will um and nor do we just sort of sit back and assume that there is no free will uh we we do get the sense that there's something there um i think he says this around b let's see b33 ish um, and I'm using a, a different a different translation. This is uh, this is the pluhar. Uh, but he says, as regards the freedom of the will, the consciousness of freedom arose from nothing but the clear exhibition of duties in their opposition to all claims of the inclinations. So it, we kind of get this sense of freedom when. We are suddenly working against our inclination, right? Uh, like a, a little kid gets that sense for the first time when they're presented with uh, a marshmallow, right? And, they're, and they have to decide whether they're going to take the marshmallow or not. And then uh, obviously the, the old experiment is that they're promised another marshmallow. But we can imagine a kind of, a kind of duty that's being, uh, that's, that's being gleaned somewhere in there where we decide, I, marshmallow, I, I will not take the marshmallow. You know, there's this, this tension, this inner tension where something kind of breaks or jiggles a bit, and we we feel like there's there's freedom in there, so that's uh, that's part of I think part of where he's showing where uh, where he's going. Right, and there, so there's an element with what you're saying that we have to act in ways that we can't we can't fully determine that they understand that therefore there's an element of the wager. Right. Yeah. The, the as this. if. And that's, yeah. Right. The as if. And that is something I think it gets applied to people like Kierkegaard and so on, the leap of faith, but that people don't see as, as clearly in Kant, but I think is already here in some some form. Um, and there are plenty of scholars that do recognize it. I'm not I'm not making up the term wager. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about who holds that uh, view when we when we get there. But um, yeah. Interesting. OK. Well, I think that's probably it uh, for for today's uh, discussion um, of the prefaces. Uh, there's plenty more to say. And as you can see, uh, Eric and I both have our own uh, sources of, of confusion uh, in, in it. It's not a straightforward bit of writing, even though this is just the preface. This is before we get into the meat of the matter. And in fact, we're still not in the meat of the matter by the next episode where we'll deal with the introductions, but we're getting a little meatier each time. So... Hopefully we will see you then. Looking forward. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoy what you heard. If you'd like more information about this podcast, including uh, reading sources for today's episode, please visit my website, chadwickjenkins.com. 
or feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail. cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.